0: Before I get into um, what I want to speak about today, I want to start with a few words of introduction, really about the whole thing about the journey of becoming a Christian and moving from maybe a place where you're not clear to a place of more clarity and a sense of commitment. Often when we think about faith and we think about becoming a Christian, we tend to want to create two distinct camps of people. On one side, we like to think of people who are clear and who are Christians and who are committed to following Jesus. And on the other side, we want to kind of separate is a bunch of people who are not clear and who have not become Christians yet. And they're over here. We have believers and unbelievers. And we can often get very stark about the separation of these two camps of people. Now, it is true that to become a Christian, you have to cross, if you like, the line of faith. You need to be There means to be a moment or a season in your life where you become clear or convinced about who Jesus is and do what it says in Romans 10, which is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is. So in that sense, there is, true, there is a separation. There is a step where you move from one place to another. However, often the, the movement or the journey, if you like, from a place of not being clear to a place of clarity in a place of real commitment is a series of smaller steps rather than one big leap. Now, I say that because we like sometimes not just to kind of demark into kind of Christians and people who are not Christians, but we often think about in terms of answers and questions and doubt. We sometimes will caricature that before I'm a Christian, I have all the questions, and all the kind of concerns and doubts. And then when I become a Christian, that's where all the answers are and all the faith is and all the hope is. It's as if this journey is a journey from all the doubts, all the questions to all the answers. That's just not true, is it? Because becoming a Christian is not suddenly saying goodbye to all questions and all concerns and sometimes all doubts. Let me take you to an amazing passage in Matthew 28. Matthew 28 where the disciples are talking to the risen Jesus. This is right at the end of Matthew 28, and it says this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That is an incredible statement, because this is the Jesus that they have seen and known for three years. They see him uh, crucified, unmistakably you know, dying on a cross, they see his body go, they, they live with the absence of him for a number of days, and now he is risen and back to life, and he's in front of them, talking to them, they hear him, look at him, they probably are even touching him, and some of them are worshiping and others are going, I'm I'm just not sure. That you could be in the presence of Jesus risen and still kind of go, I have questions. This is really a picture, if you like, of the Christian life. The Christian life is not just a story of just like, you know, never-ending worship with never, no questions. The Christian life is a mix of awe and wonder and worship with questions and sometimes doubts. There's faith but sometimes fear. There's hope and at times desperate anxiety. That's how it goes. Billy Graham, the famous American evangelist and preacher, was asked once in his you know, later life, When you die, are you expecting Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant? And Billy Graham apparently paused for quite a long time and said, I hope so. Michael Novak, a writer, says doubt is not so much the dividing line that separates people into different camps as it is a razor's edge that runs through every soul. So rather than being the enemy of faith or just, if you like, the territory and domain of people who are not clear yet, doubt actually and faith often live together. And doubt can be, when handled correctly, a very important spur or, if you like, stimulus to faith. Doubts and questions should make you probe your own faith deeper. They should refine it and deepen it. The process is not always comfortable, but it is productive. Productive. And if you don't question your faith as a Christian, if you don't look and go, I have some questions, this series should raise some questions for you. If you don't acknowledge them, and if you don't probe into them yourself, actually it can leave you very vulnerable. When you experience tragedy or trouble in your own life, or you come into close contact with somebody who's clearly not a Christian but has a very robust secular view and they question your faith. If you've never questioned your own faith, you may have trouble at that point. Tim Keller, who wrote a book called The Reason for God, and if you like Andrew's book, you will really like Tim Keller's book, says this, a faith without some doubts in it is like a human body without any antibodies in it. It's not wrong to have doubts as a Christian, it's how you handle them which counts. Don't bury it and ignore them. Interestingly, when you read the Gospels, it seems to me that Jesus doesn't have a big problem with people who have questions and doubts. But he has a, he has a big problem with self-righteous people who think they have all the answers. So, hence this series is for everybody in the room. For atheists, agnostics, believers, it's all designed to help us Think Now, before we jump into this week, a little kind of recount of the story so far, what we've been through so far. Week one, Andrew introduced the series to us, and we talked about the whole idea of how we can reach any kind of sense of conviction or conclusion when it comes to faith, like the methodology, and that we live in a kind of Western secular world, which would basically often will say, you can only really believe what you can prove, what science can fundamentally prove. And now, I have some sympathy with that view, but it is only as good as it goes, isn't it? Because as we saw in week one, the reality is there are lots of things we all believe which you cannot prove scientifically. That's not how we reach our conclusions generally. So you can't prove lots of things out of history. You can't prove that Adolf Hitler existed or that Winston Churchill existed. You can't even prove, for example, that what you had for breakfast, that I had shredded for breakfast this morning. I can't prove that to you. And when I read that in my note, it came out that I had sherry for breakfast, which I didn't, everybody. (laughs) But we can't prove it scientifically, but I believe it to be true because the way that we often reach our convictions is more through evidence and explanation and then what it seems the most reasonable answer given the evidence we're looking at, which would include science. So we talked about the fact that actually science doesn't have the whole answer when it comes to what we believe. Then week two, we talked about origins and how you know there are there's nothing and then you have something and then this something is structured in something, such a way that it can sustain and create life and 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 the whole thing about and you talked about the Big Bang Theory and where that comes from, and how science is pointing towards the fact that the universe does appear to be expanding and have come from a point of creation. But how that in and of itself is no 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 means an answer to who created things. In fact, you can easily and strongly argue if it had a beginning point, then someone must have begun it. So actually a lot of this stuff, although you know, a number of writers would argue against this, doesn't actually necessarily answer the question at all about who began creation and who sustains it. But actually it points towards the very plausibility that there is a creator, particularly given the fine-tuning of the universe, that someone should have designed this or must have designed it. So we looked at that... You know, in week two. Now, this week, I want to take us a step further on, if you like, on the journey. And I want to talk about if God then is plausible, and obviously, I believe God is real, but let's talk conceptually. If God is plausible then, then is it possible that that God would intervene and interrupt and get involved in the world in seemingly extraordinary and miraculous ways? Would God do things? Because what, what is possible, in other words? Miracles are a big deal for Christians. Miracles, then the miraculous is right at the center, if you like, of Christianity. Every Christmas, we celebrate God becoming man. You know, the incarnation, the virgin birth, that's a miracle. Every Easter, we celebrate the miracle of an empty tomb and the resurrection. That's a miracle. So if you are serious about finding out, is the Christian faith Real is Jesus who he says he is, then the issue of could God do miracles is absolutely central because if God can't do them and doesn't do them, then the very core and center of the Christian faith is a vacuum and we should all go home. So, God could God do it and would God do it? Is it real, in other words? Now, interesting for me, looking back, I've realized that this issue, would God intervene? Is God able or aware enough or interested enough to intervene was a big deal for me growing up. Okay. I grew up going to church, which I'm grateful for. And I was, if you like, conceptually convinced that God was there. I think lots of children are pretty convinced God is there, interestingly, intuitively. But that's certainly I grew up thinking that, but I had no sense of expectation that God might intervene Or interrupt my world. In other words, God would never turn up at church. That makes sense? Yeah, He was there, but He didn't like our services either. (laughs) So I had no expectation that He would interrupt the things that we were doing, which does beg the question why were we doing it in the first place? That all changed for me when I was about 13 years old. Big story I'm gonna make very short. Around that time, amongst the teenagers who were attending the churches in the town I grew up in, really what happened, God began like a spiritual awakening. And teenagers used to start to meet together, and we started to see God do amazing things. So we used to pray in the midst of this. Teenagers, we used to start gathering on Wednesday nights to pray in different people's houses. Now that in itself is a miracle, isn't it? Like, if you get people gathering every Wednesday night to pray off their own back, teenagers or children, that something is happening. And we used to do these prayer meetings like we prayed like God was going to do what we prayed, which is a different kind of prayer. It wasn't, like, hopeful. It was, like, really, like, I think we really started to pray. And we saw God do some amazing stuff. So I remember, I remember a young girl, one of my brother's friends, a whole bunch of them came around our house during the school holidays. And she had a broken toe. And so we did what? You did. We prayed. And they took her up to the room. My mum was there, prayed with her. And there was about 15 teenagers in that room. And her toe just snapped back into place. I remember seeing that as a kid. I remember being at a youth camp. And one of the uh, leaders was running across. He fell over, sprained his ankle. So we did what we did. We prayed. And instantly he's healed. I remember seeing a friend of mine whose legs, one leg was longer than the other. And so she had back problems. I remember getting them to sit her on a chair. We prayed. And her leg grew. I remember a lady who was completely blind coming to one of our Wednesday night prayer meetings. It's just teenagers in the room and we prayed for her and her sight was partially healed. I saw all these things and in that season, if you like, I became convinced that God was not just there but he was interested and he was able. Now, my stories don't necessarily convince you. Some of you in the room are saying, I've got those stories too. So, in other, so for you, probably what's happening is inside of you is like, yes, I believe that's true. But for others of us who don't have the history of those stories, who have more kind of questions about whether that is even plausible, my stories probably don't convince you, and probably they shouldn't convince you, because we live in a culture which is far more skeptical when it comes to even the possibility of this ever happening. In our culture, often if you hear the word miracle, it is used in the context of someone trying to sell you something. Have you noticed this? So we talk about miracle cures, don't we? Miracle cures, like creams, that if you rub in your face enough of this stuff, it will literally reverse the aging process. Has anybody found that to be true? It's not true. It just kind of fills in the cracks if you don't rub it in properly. Or miracle cures when it comes to weight loss, that you can eat as many donuts as you like, but just take these shakes. What's going on? Now, or, yeah, I know horoscopes are a big, big deal, and this is not make, to make light of them. But when I was a kid, I thought they were just funny, okay? And my dad used to have the paper, and every night he'd get home, I'd read his paper, and I'd get hold of the horoscopes just to have a good, basically, for, I'm not saying this is funny, but for, it was funny for like a 13-year-old. I'd look up mine to see what they were predicting for the next day, and pretty much every day would say, tomorrow is going to be a good day, but some bad things could happen. And I'd be like, that pretty much covers every possible eventuality, doesn't it? The worst, if you like, use of the word miracle comes in the faith world where sham religious leaders manipulate people into thinking that they have some kind of miraculous powers just as a way really to sell you their stuff and get your money. So you're right to be cautious. We should ask questions about whether this is real. How do you journey, if you like, from where Andrew took us week one, how we begin to even think about what we believe, week two, that maybe the idea of God is very plausible, given what has happened in creation and the universe. Into week three, if God is plausible, what is he like? Would he intervene? I think the step is actually quite a small step, not a big step. The reason is this. If God is not real, if God's not plausible, therefore the miraculous is never going to take place, is it? Because he doesn't exist. But if God is possible, if there is a creator who could create out of nothing and who could sustain all things, then surely it is very, very possible that he would be able also to speak to people, to heal people, to make virgins give birth, and dead people come to life. If that kind of God is real and possible, then surely the miraculous is possible as well. Now, if you're convinced by that step, that doesn't mean that you have to believe every kind of miracle you ever hear of. In fact, I would suggest you don't do that. You should question. But it does mean that the miraculous is definitely deserves consideration and investigation. Interestingly, it seems to be miracles often don't, aren't the thing which persuades someone to follow Jesus in and of themselves. Interesting. We you look in the Old Testament, the people of Israel See, phenomenal, miraculous things happen to them. They, they escape out of Egypt through, you know, through water being held up and they cross over through dry land. That is an incredible thing. They drink water that comes out of a rock. They get fed food that falls out of heaven. You would think, would you not? You'd be totally convinced at that point. But this is the people who decide that they're not convinced at all and they want to go back to Egypt on a fairly regular basis. Jesus heals numerous people who actually go, thanks very much, I'm off now and don't follow him at all. So miracles often in and of themselves are not the thing which push you into really committing to Jesus, but they are very important clues on the journey that if you follow them, lead you towards another sense of conviction and another step on your journey. Let me tell you two main ways that the miracles you get portrayed in the Bible and why we are told they are there. First of all, in the Bible, miracles are there often to authenticate the message, and the messenger. It's God's way of saying, this message and this person is mine. So in the Old Testament, Moses, who leads the people out of Egypt, performs a number of miraculous things, which are all ways of God saying, this is my boy. So he has a staff, he throws on the floor, it becomes a snake, he picks it back up, becomes a staff. That would be a great trick at a party, wouldn't it? Okay, Moses does it. What is God doing? God is saying, listen to him, It's a way of saying, this is genuine. There's something real happening here. It's not a sham, in other words. And you see that throughout the Bible, that the message is authenticated by power coming. So it's a way of saying, this is real. Miracles, however, are not just real. They are also, however, signs. So if you were here in the summer, we did a whole series teaching out of John's Gospel called Signs, looking at various miracles that Jesus performs, and they were described as signs of the kingdom. Now, Jesus comes, one of the major themes of his teaching as he comes is he's teaching on the kingdom of God. He's saying, uh, you know, the kingdom of God is near you. In fact, Jesus himself inaugurates in a new way God's kingdom rule and reign coming on the earth. So he announces the kingdom, but also what you find is when he heals people, it is a sign of what God's kingdom, what his rule, what... Being with God close up is like so. He heals sick people, casts out evil spirits, he cures varieties of conditions, he resuscitates the dead, and he exercises power over nations, over over nature. In Revelation 21, we get a picture of what God's kingdom will be like, undiluted, if you like, when we know God face to face and we hear him, meet him face to face. This is what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. It is a picture of when we meet God fully face to face in an undiluted way. It's just, this is what it's gonna be like, okay? Death will go, sadness will go, Pain will go. Healing is coming. Restoration is coming. This is a picture. Now, when Jesus heals people in the Gospels, it is a foretaste, a sign of what that's going to be like. Okay? One day, we'll experience that completely fully. Now, we experience it in part. And his healing intervention is a sign. This is what life is like. This is, healing is coming because one day, complete healing will come. Last year... On our summer holiday, me and my family, I've got four kids, we, we went to Holland and we cycled a bit. And we cycled one day and we stopped at this supermarket. And it was one of those supermarkets where someone had a little stool and they were doing tasters. You know the kind of tasters you get in supermarkets? And if you have really little kids... They often go round and round and round again, the stall, hoping to get about seven of these, hoping the lady there doesn't realize that they've been here seven times already. Well, this particular stall, the lady there was doing burgers. It was amazing. It's the best stall I've ever been to in a supermarket. But only quarter of a burger. So one by one, all my family was going in and out trying to get more burgers. I think we got one and a half burgers between us. Okay. It was a f- the little bit of burger I got was a foretaste of what the whole thing would be like. It was a taster an experience of what it would be like one day. That's what a miracle is like. It is a sign of what it will be like. Tim Keller says this about it. I think this is a helpful quote. We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. In other words, it's not God doing something alien, it's doing something which is supernatural to us. This is how things should be. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also the wonderful foretaste of what he is going to do with that power Jesus' miracles, this is brilliant, are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. Now, if we're open to the idea of God, and therefore I would suggest open to the idea of the miraculous, this kind of thing should, if you like, whet your appetite. Not surprisingly, when you are given a quarter of a burger, doesn't completely satisfy you. In fact, it's the other way around. I wasn't that hungry before. and now, I'm like starving. I'm desperate for burgers. Well, that's what this is like. This is There should be something in you, if you're open to these things, or maybe even more convinced than open, who's like something in you is going, I, I want to see more. Of I'm hungry for that. And at the end of this morning, after we've done some questions and after the band have played, If you'd like someone to pray with you, we would love to pray with you. If you think, God, I need you to break in in a miraculous way, we'd love to pray with you. Just two or three things I want to say about seeing God do more of those things. Here's the first thing I do not believe is, is about. First of all, I do not believe seeing God do the miraculous is about a methodology some people will teach stuff and make a big deal about Jesus did this, Jesus did that, Jesus did that. Jesus did a whole range of different things when he healed people, which I think, you know, Jesus even spat in people's faces, okay? We're not about to start doing that at church, which I think proves the point that it's not a method. I don't think you can boil God down into do A, B, C, and then God will do D. It just doesn't seem to work like that. It's not about a method. I would suggest it is about these things, though. It is about asking In James, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. People get healed in the Gospels because they cry out, they ask. If you want to see God do something, you need to ask him. sounds so obvious, but that's the first one. Secondly, I think it's about faith being present. How much faith? Well, Jesus says you just need a mustard seed. That's not a lot, okay? What does a mustard seed of faith look like? It looks like enough faith to come and ask, In Mark 9, there's a story about a dad who's got a son who he loves, whose son has been tormented by an evil spirit all his life. And the disciples can't heal him, and they bring him to Jesus. And the man says to Jesus, if you can help. The key word in that sentence is the word if. And Jesus said, if I can help. And the man says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. In other words, I'm a mixture of. There's a part of me that wants to hope, but there's a part of me that's really fearful this isn't going to happen. I kind of think you can do it, but I'm not totally convinced you will. And you know what happens? Jesus deals with the the evil spirit. The boy is healed. Mustard seed faith is enough faith to come and ask. Here's the last thing you need to do. You need to keep asking. There's a story in Luke 18 about a persistent widow who just, and Jesus says before he tells the story, I'm telling you the story For two reasons. He's like, I'm going to make it really, really obvious to you. First of all, I want to tell you the story so you remember to pray. Secondly, so you don't stop praying. You don't give up. I just think, how many of us forget to pray? How many of us forget to even ask? And how many of us, when we do ask, give up asking? So you need to ask. There needs to be some faith, mustard seed faith. And you need to not give up asking. And at the end of the day, we'd love to pray with you if you need to see God break into your life in a miraculous way. Amen. Okay, we're going to do some questions. So, does the amount of faith you have affect the result of prayer and miracles? Well, I I don't know how God works this out, okay? In the end, God can answer that question for us one day. But it seems to me that I get nervous about that, because how do you quantify enough faith? And I get nervous because I think that can be really abused by church leaders who tell people they haven't got enough faith, So I think that's a real danger. I think I'm not comfortable at all with telling people, you don't have enough faith. How can I possibly know? And how can I possibly know whether that's the reason for which God doesn't seem to have moved or not? So I'm happy to go with Jesus' answer. You do need faith, but it it doesn't need to be a lot. Mustard seed. Interestingly, Jesus heals people on the basis of other people's faith as well. So the guys who smash a hole in the roof, can you imagine what it'd be like if you were the owner of the house, by the way? like these guys smashing a hole in my ceiling. Well, they smash a hole in the ceiling and they lower their mate down, who I don't know if he had much of an idea of what was going on. And Jesus says, because of your faith, I'll heal you. So it's interesting, isn't it? It's not a neat package. It's not like, you've got to have this much and this is how you prove it. You've got to demand these things or shout in a certain way. It just doesn't seem to work like that at all. God really does seem to kind of like circumnavigate the ways we think it should work. So there definitely should be faith. I'm not sure how you quantify what is enough. Jesus says mustard seed. So I'm happy to go with Jesus. If you're not happy, take it out with him. Okay. (laughs) Next one. Can the devil perform miracles? If so, how well do they serve to authenticate the messenger? I think, I think Satan can, no, I don't think Satan can perform miracles. I do think, that whole world is often a way of warping what is good. So I do think uh, what you find, I think, in the kind of in that whole world is there's the genuine kind of God thing, and then you get people who, you know, are tapping into the kind of like the kind of demonic, and it is a. I don't think there's anything good in it. I think it's very evil but there is some power attached to it. But no, I wouldn't call them miracles. I would say it's extremely dangerous and I wouldn't go anywhere near it. And it is a warped version of what's really good, if that makes sense. That's a massive, massive... So in many ways, no, but I also wouldn't say there's nothing powerful in a demonic world. That's not true either. Okay, C.S. Lewis once said that there are two opposite things you need to avoid. One is seeing demons everywhere and the other one is ignoring they exist at all. You need to go right in the middle and go, they are real, they do exist, but we don't see them everywhere and we don't put everything down to the demonic. Okay, next question. How do you explain to a non-Christian the reality of miracles? Well, I think just really what we've talked about today, that I think if you step through the plausibility that God is real, then if they accept the fact that God is possibly real, therefore the existence of of miracles is possible as well. I think that's extremely clear. I think it's very difficult to argue that, you know, if they're going to say, well, God's not real, then okay, there we go. You can't necessarily convince them. But I think if people are open to the idea that there is some kind of creator, even if it's not the creator that we know in the Bible, then I think, therefore, you must be open to the idea that that creator is able to do other miraculous things as well as create. So, okay, another question. Why do we see so many more miracles in the Bible compared to today? Should we see more? Okay. I think there's a, there's a kind of an assumption in that question. Because I think the assumption is, is that we do see more miracles in the Bible than we see now. And I'm not sure that's necessarily true. So it was interesting. A few weeks ago, we had uh, a friend of ours, Steve Nicholson. Steve leads a church in Chicago, and is a, a part of a movement called the Vineyard Movement. And if you know about the Vineyard Movement, they, their founding father was a man called John Wimber. Now, John Wimber had a like, really remarkable healing ministry. Like, really remarkable. The kind of he- healing ministry that people write books about. And uh, people in this room may have even been to his meetings 20, 30 years ago. Well, Steve, who knew John very well, would say that they see far more miracles now than they did in the time of John Wimber. And I think sometimes we can look back on either times in church history or even look at the Bible because it's written in a condensed way. That doesn't feel that condensed when you're reading Lamentations, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Okay. I I think it's very difficult to say. I think, I got asked this question earlier by somebody else. What about the whole thing where Jesus says you're going to do greater things? I think that phrase doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do more spectacular things. Jesus I think raising Lazarus, is, I don't know how you're going to top that one, okay? We're going to call forth 15 people dead from the tombs at the same time. I think it's not, not talking about, you know, I, I, like a greater, more, you're going to do more spectacular healings than Jesus. I think it's this will be more released amongst people. You know, the Holy Spirit came, coming meant that actually this ability to know Jesus and walk with God and seeing God move was given to everybody who believed now. So therefore, surely Seeing more miracles is very plausible because this was given to all believers, not just certain prophets in the Old Testament. Okay, last question. Why does God heal some people and not others? Okay, I was worried about this question. Let me answer this in two ways. This kind of question, as I'm sure you're aware, is loaded with potential pain. Because behind this question is, Why did my child die? Or why did my dad die when my friend's dad lived? Why did his treatment work and his didn't? And at that level, at a personal individual level, the answer is, I don't know. And I'm not going to give you some kind of glib answer that Christians sometimes do. Because I don't have an answer. Why, Why that selection seems to happen, I have no idea. However, if you like at another level, a bigger picture level, more conceptual level, I think it is very helpful to know two or three things. First of all, to, to have a framework to think we are experiencing something of God's kingdom and power now, now but we don't experience it fully yet. But one day, when we know him face to face, we will experience him fully that helps us navigate, at least in our minds, some kind of understanding of why we don't see everything we want to see now. So I think that's a really helpful thing to know. I think it's a really helpful thing, I think, if you believe the same thing as I do, to know that one day everybody will be healed. So although it doesn't deal with the pain, it creates and helps hope to think this is not an issue of selection and either or, this is an issue of timing. One day, God will heal everybody. One day, you know, all that suffering will be reversed. All that pain will be reversed. And it doesn't mean that, therefore, it takes away all the pain and we all got to feel okay about what's happened. It doesn't mean that at all. It means I have a reason to hope. And that's extremely important. So in one level, the answer is I don't know. Another level, it's like I think it helps to know we live in a season where we see some of God's power, but not all of it. And there will be a day, the Bible says, when everybody is healed. And I will just say this, I'm going to end with this. Our expectation of what eternity is like is extremely important when it comes to this kind of issue. I think most of us, including me, live and think as if eternity isn't real. And so one day we'll be there and go, oh, it's real. It, it, it's happened. It's happened. And I think in that day, it seems to me, we will have an extremely different perspective on what has or happened in this life. You know, if that's true, and this is just a mere, however many years, 40 to 80, 90 years, 20 to 90 years, and that is forever, we will have a very different perspective on this life. Okay, let's pray. Maybe the band can come back up. God we thank you for your word and we thank you for your care for us. I want to pray for anybody in the room who you know has questions or maybe even ask some of those questions and they're coming out of a position not just of a concept but out of a position where this is this is very real this is loaded with pain. And I pray God that you'd comfort them. I pray for people who are asking questions right now in the room God that you would by your spirit bring some sense of peace and conviction in their hearts. And Lord, we want to say we want to follow you and we want you to help us know you better. We believe God and help us with our unbelief. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.